starting out a new series. There we go. Lasting investments. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And when it says they remain, they last. And so faith, hope, and love are lasting investments. They retain their value. They don't lose their value over time. We're going to begin with faith. Peter describes faith, says it's of greater worth than gold. Uh, good to invest in gold. Gold is a good investment these days. But faith is a better investment than gold is. And that's what we're going to talk about, about investing in faith this week and hope next week and love the week after that. As we think about faith, there's a couple of related experiences that are always a part of faith development. Faith doesn't come naturally. It's something that has to be developed, something we invest in. We have to put some time in, some focus, some mental energy, and as we'll see, it really impacts the way we walk through life. There's a couple related experiences. There are water experiences, and then there's wilderness experiences. Both of them relate to faith. Water experiences are experiences where God's presence is visible. We see things, we feel things, there's things we can point to, and we can see God did that, God did that, and God did that. Those are water experiences, and that's part of faith development. But then there's wilderness experiences where God's presence is not obvious. We feel like we're in places alone. We can't point to God's doing this and that. In fact, what we can point to is he doesn't seem to be doing this or that. And both of these are critical to faith development. Let's think about a couple different kinds. Let's think about water faith first. What it says in Exodus chapter 14, verse 29. It says, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' the servant. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. That's the Israelites. And then we find another New Testament example of somebody experiencing water faith, and that's Jesus. That's what it says. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I want you to notice that there's a couple water experiences. There, water, there was a wall of water on the right and the left, and they could point to the water, and they could look at it, and they could see it. And when they turned around and the water caved in on the Egyptians, it was a very clear demonstration of the power of God. They went away from that place having no doubt at all that God had done something supernatural, something significant. And Jesus had a similar experience. He went into the water. The spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. And I want you to to know that in water experiences, they could see things. They could see the water. They could hear things. Jesus heard the voice. They felt things. It was something that was captured by their senses. But the water experiences, as we see, and we see in these things, they did not last. In both occasions, 
when they went right from the banks of the Red Sea, they went right into the wilderness. It's right there. And so within three days, they're lost in desert. Jesus did the same thing, came up out of the water right into the wilderness, probably a similar wilderness he went into. And it seems that God does not allow his children to bask on the banks of water experiences. It would have been, it would have been nice for the Israelites to be able to stay there. As we've talked before, put up condos, kind of throw down a frosty and put your foot up on the, um, the, the porch and just kind of look out. Boy, you remember that? You, boy, how, how high was that water anyways? Boy, I was about this high. And, and do you remember when the, Israelite, when the Egyptians went in there? And, oh, boy, that would be nice to... They, kind of, they weren't allowed to do that. They were led by the Spirit. And Jesus in the same place. Um, seems like water-based experiences and water-based faith doesn't last very long. Water-based faith evaporates quickly, it seems. This is the kind of faith James critiques. It says in James chapter 1, let me read. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Water faith left by itself leads to double-mindedness. We end up being driven and tossed by the wind like waves. And what ends up with water faith, because it's something we see, when we see expressions of love, we say, he loves me. And when those expressions aren't there, he loves me not. Uh, when he gives me what I want, he loves me. When he doesn't give me what I want, he loves me not, blown and tossed by circumstances. And water faith is important. It's an important part of faith development. But it can't last forever. Otherwise, when God's active, our faith is high. And when he's not active, our faith is low. And, and we end up being like waves, blown and tossed. Water faith, water experiences don't last. I will say, though, water faith is one phase of faith development. Water experiences serve a purpose in developing faith. They're important. I think we can all talk about times in our life where God seemed especially close. We might not have heard a voice, but we saw something. We asked him for something, and something occurred, something that we can't ascribe to anything other but him. And we think back fondly to those times, but the fact is that those type of experiences, they happen once in a while. They don't happen as often as we'd like them to. Um, lasting faith can't live on a diet of miraculous interventions. Lasting faith doesn't live on that. It has to become wilderness faith. And that's where we, we're going to spend some time thinking about wilderness faith. Let's read what it says in Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, talking about what God did with the Israelites in the wilderness. God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It says God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. God led them in the desert. It's difficult, and it was difficult for them to believe that God was leading when they went from a place where there was water experiences to a place, Rephidim, where there was no water. And again, when we end up in those places, we assume that somebody did something wrong. 
we must we assume that we did something wrong, and or we assume that that the people leading us did something wrong. That's what the Israelites did. They blamed Moses. And because what they thought, and we think this, is that if God's leading, God would never lead and does never lead to a waterless place. And that's easier to think when in my rearview mirror I can see, I can remember the walls of water to the right and to the left. You remember that? And it was right, it was right back there three days ago. Remember how high the water was? And how in the world... Could we have gone through a water experience like that? Now, three days later, here we are, and it's waterless. Who messed up? Maybe I zigged when I shouldn't have zagged. Maybe it was Moses' fault. That's what happens, and that's what makes wilderness experiences difficult, is that they, it was just a water experience. And it happened just, I can almost throw a rock to where this thing occurred. And that's what makes it difficult. We, we think somebody must have done something wrong. God would never lead us to a place where we would be without water. Would he? Doesn't seem like it. He was, he was there by the water. So, and that's what's difficult about wilderness experience. The fact is, God did lead them in the desert. He led them in the desert for 40 years. Led them to places where there wasn't the kind of thing that they expected to see. It says he humbled you, causing you to hunger. What's hunger? What is hunger? Throw a definition at it. It's a God-given alarm system. You know, so when you are in need of sustenance, hunger is that which alerts you to the fact that you need something. And the more you're without food, the, the louder the alarm becomes. So hunger is a God-given alarm system. It alerts you to a danger that cannot be disregarded forever. Otherwise, it's going to take your life. God ceased. And again, when you think of what does God do to cause somebody to hunger, he, has, he put the alarm in place, but what he does is he prevents those resources to keep the alarm from going off. So what God does to cause hunger is he doesn't provide you with what you need. And when God doesn't provide you with what you need, what do you normally assume? What did I do wrong? I mean, he just, but I wonder what I did between that day three days ago and now. I was, I was flush then, and now we, we tend to dismiss the fact that, that God leads us from one to another. Hunger is humbling. Humility in the Bible is not being self-effacing. It's not, oh, it wasn't me. Oh, come on, no, it was God, it wasn't me. By the way, I'll, I'll mention something. Joel's humble. That song last? Yeah. <laughs> and he'll be the first to tell you. No, actually, he won't be. Um, but being self-effacing humility, that song last week, the one with the nice, he wrote that. And again, one of the... Let me tell you what um, we kind of think of humility as. Oh, it wasn't me, you know. And I, I kid you. Sometimes you hear people who write songs. They say, oh, "God gave me this song," and then they sing it. God must have been off that day. I mean, that, I mean, he just just he must have been tone deaf. I mean, he wasn't very creative that day. Uh, but again, it's, that's one of the nice things that, that Joel he, he not only plays well, but he has and he wants to. 
to create songs that have themes that you not are not normally visited, and that'd be nice to look forward to. Um, anyways, um, hunger, I mean, humility is humbling, and humility in the Bible is not being self-effacing. It's the inability to use what I have to get what I want. That's what humility is. It's I have a physical need, a social need, an emotional need, and I can't leverage my connections and resources to meet the need. That's what humility is, the inability to use what I have to get what I want, and it's humbling because I'm left with an aching need and no way to meet it, and it might involve me or it might involve my family. And any time you're face-to-face with an unrelenting need, especially a hunger, and you're not able to mean it, there's, there's a shame in that. I've never gone hungry. I wasn't raised in poverty. But I imagine that there's that sense when you are impoverished, when you don't have enough to eat. Some of you have experienced that in your life. And on a, a longer period than you would care. And there's something, I wonder what's wrong with me. It's hard to experience hunger. It's humbling. And that's what God did. He humbled them, causing them to hunger. And then feeding them with manna, which neither they nor their fathers had known, he fed them in an unexpected way. Fed them in an unexpected way. There was a story about this guy who was a missionary, and he was dependent on checks that came from the mainland to be able to provide his food. He was ill and came, he was struck ill, and then he didn't have any money to buy food. And so he was kind of complaining, and he did what you and I would. What did I do wrong? You know, I'm a missionary. I'm on the field. I'm doing what God wants, and yet the money didn't come, and it still didn't come. And then he was down to the place where he was getting sicker and sicker, and all he had was oatmeal, you know, oatmeal. And so for a month, he subsisted on oatmeal. And as the days and the weeks went by, he became, well, you understand, more and more Please, God, what are you doing? And in this case, he learned something. He, he, the check came in, and he ended up feeling better. <laughs> so he described the condition to one of the people back stateside. He goes, it was this and this and this and this and this. And, and the guy said, oh, I know what you had. It was this. And then he said, and, and you'll never believe what we prescribed for that problem, a 30-day oatmeal diet. So. <laughs> But it, it doesn't always work like that. We don't always see the answers in the rearview mirror. This guy saw one and said, oh, I get it now, but that doesn't always occur. Uh, why does God do this? Why does he cause us to hunger and then feed us in unexpected ways? It says to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You know what it says when it says to depend not on bread alone, but on every word. In the text, it doesn't say word. It it says, so that you won't live on bread alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does bread come from the mouth of the Lord? Yeah, it did. He caused manna to come. But not only does bread come, everything comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so what God did with them, he put them in situations where they couldn't depend on that coming from his mouth, so they had to wait for other things to come from his mouth. And that's why God leads us in the wilderness. He withholds the physical provision that comes from him so that we're in a place being left without and being hungry. We have to tune into him. What are you doing? And then we experience other things that come from his mouth. 
promises that we end up clinging to. That's what happens in the wilderness. We take promises more seriously. We have to grab them more assertively and hold on to them because it's we can't do much else to stave our hunger. We learn to trust non-physical provisions. This is a very, very difficult lesson to learn. Hunger is not a pleasant experience, whether it be emotional, social, spiritual, or physical. And so we're not surprised when we see in Exodus chapter 17, it's in your tech, it's in your worship folder. So they quarreled with Moses when they were hungry. He called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So in this place where they're hungry and they're quarreling, they're complaining and they're complaining about Moses and they're complaining about the lack of food and water. And when God zeroes in on, what's your issue? I'll tell you what my issue is. I'm in this place and my stomach's growling. I don't have any food or water. Hmm? And God said, that's really not your issue. That wasn't the testing. They tested the Lord saying, and you know what their question was? They didn't say this out loud, but they said it in their complaining. It was the question at the root of complaining, at the root of the grumbling. And here's the question. Is the Lord among us or not? Do you understand that? Is the Lord among us or not? No. We must have zigged and zagged. you know what God said to them? I will be with you in the wilderness. I will be with you. But rather than talk to him about their need, they prism, 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 prism. See, stuff like that I'm not going to be able to do next week. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we can't throw rocks at them. We know the challenge of living in hunger-related tension. That's a difficult thing, isn't it? To live in tension. How many of you are really good at living in tension? <laughs> really good at living with hunger when you're emotionally deprived. I'm great at that. Socially deprived, spiritually deprived, physically deprived. Good at dealing with tension? I don't know if anybody in this country, well, that's no, no, I can't say that. There's areas in this country, we are a very powerful country. There are some communities in Sioux Falls, I mean, South Dakota, very impoverished, but poorest communities in the country, third world countries, the Indian reservations. Um, but by and large, as a, as a, as a nation, um, we don't have to do without. No. Um, we, don't, we have a hard time knowing how to live with hunger-related tension, but when you think of it, um, the inability to live with unmet tension is really at the root of things, isn't it? Why do we kill other people, either with sticks and stones or words? Why do we do that? Because that person creates tension for us, and we eliminate the tension by eliminating the person, right? Right? Why do we seduce individuals and kind of make them do what we want them to do? Use fog to get them to do what we want them to do. Why do we do that? Because we can't, we don't want to live with the tension. If I can eliminate somebody who's causing the tension or recruit somebody who can solve it, I don't have to live with tension. It's at the, the basis of sin. Um, unlike Jesus, 
unlike the Israelites, excuse me, Jesus was able to live with the tension in the wilderness. And that, look what it says in Matthew 4. The tempter came to Jesus and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. I've been looking at this text for a long time. Long time. And it's always, I've always been curious. What's the big deal here? So he says, commands a stone to become bread. Is that really a problem? Really? Is it, is it a problem because Satan asked him to do it? Or throw himself down and have God catch him? Or see all the glory, all the affirmation and regard of the world? What is the problem here? I remember thinking this about a couple decades ago. I said, you know what, someday... I think I'm going to understand this, and I think I understand this text a little bit better now. After all these years, do you know what all those temptations were aimed at? Eliminating tension, right? Eliminating tension. Physical provision, the tension goes away. Emotional provision, jump off, God catches you. And any sense that God was distant, created by the hunger, that's gone. He showed up. So if there is a that type of provision, a rescue, it eliminates the tension via emotional provision. It eliminates the tension via physical provision. How about all the glory of the world? I think it eliminates the tension via social provision. Which all the glory, what what Satan is Devil is indicated to Jesus, bow down and worship me, and I'll make everybody in the world go, oh, and all the glory, all the affirmation, regard of the world. Would you agree with me that that's something physical provision eliminates tension, and emotional provision and social provision? There's nothing wrong with that, except that Jesus was in a place where. He did something very unique. He leveraged. Remember anything from this morning? This might be it. We're used to levering, leveraging connection with God to remove tension. Right? We leverage connection with God to remove tension. God, I'm your child. Give me what I want. Give me the physical things I want. Give me the emotional things I want. Give me the social things I want. And it's not bad to ask for those things. But when it comes time, we're in a wilderness where those things are withheld. They got a problem. Somebody zigged when they should have zagged. And we don't usually blame him, but we'll blame one another. We'll blame ourselves. Do you know what Jesus did? He didn't blame anyone. This is a big thing. He leveraged connection with the Father not to eliminate tension, but to endure it. He leveraged 
connection, to endure tension, not eliminate it. That's unique. God, I'm your son, and therefore don't get rid of this tension. Help me to live in it for as long as I need to because you told me you're with me. And even though my stomach is growling, it doesn't mean that I am not your son and you are not pleased with me. You know what Jesus was able to do? Hold his hunger and hold God's hand at the same time. That's significant. What they say is the difference between fear. Is it frightening to be without food? Absolutely it is. Is it frightening to be hungry? Yeah, it is. To be without emotional and social and spiritual and physical resources. Let me say, there's a difference between fear and anxiety. Fear is a natural response to a perceived threat. Anxiety is the natural response to facing it alone. Need is very isolating. When you don't have what you want, you naturally feel excluded from people. You feel that, don't you? You feel excluded and isolated. You look around, nobody else has this need that I have. Everybody else seems to be happy. Socially well off, physically well off, spiritually well off, emotionally well off. And in our pain, we feel cut off. And we feel cut off from God as well. We figure, I must have done something wrong. But you understand this, don't you? You understand this, don't you? What are you hungry for? Who do you blame for your hunger? Emotionally? If you're not in the place you thought you would be, it's a wilderness. There's a presence of a need, but the absence of supply. The kind of friendships you thought you'd experience at this level in your life are not there. And you're wondering, who misstepped? Emotionally. You thought you'd be in a, 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 more, a better frame of mind by this time in your life. You thought all those dark thoughts you used to think, those would be gone by now if you connected with God. And, and maybe it hasn't occurred to you that when you walk with God, he doesn't remove all the difficulties. And you're wondering, where, who went wrong? I shouldn't be in the place that I am right now. And you're wondering who you should blame. Social, emotional, financial. Some of you felt, that. Boy, I thought I'd be in a better place by this time in my life. I thought I'd be in a place where I could just kind of cruise into a retirement and cruise into the twilight of my life, but that's not going to happen. And you're wondering, who misstepped? And you blame yourself or blame others. It's hard, isn't it, to hold on to the reality. Now, some of us have a hard time admitting hunger. You think Jesus would have admitted he was hungry? Forty days in, Jesus, you hungry? Oh, no, I'm fine. <laughs> ah, I'm good. <laughs> I ate a month and a half ago. Um, no, he would have been straight. No, hungry. Because he could hold his hunger and hold his father's hand at the same time. So Jesus could be hungry and not terrified. Not terrified. You know what it's like to have a need? And to be alone in it is to be terrified by the need. You know what God wants us to do? Hold our hunger and hold his hand at the same time. To not to admit it. God, 
socially, financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically. I'm not where I thought I'd be. This, this frightens me, but I guess what I hear is that, that there's not just water experiences, there's wilderness experiences, and this feels like it. And so I guess you're still with me even though my hunger's with me. You're with me even though my stomach is growling. You get that? That's what Jesus was able to do. Um, it's a difficult thing to do. God does lead his children into the wilderness to teach them. Um, that's what it says in the last text, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's one of these things. That verse is tough, isn't it? Wonderful. <laughs> I just got fired. <laughs> Great. Hey, uh, you know what? I'm more lonely than I ever thought I'd be. <laughs> yes. Joy, hey, wonderful. But what it, what it goes on to describe, though, is is how okay. How does that work? Whenever you, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's one thing that that stands out in that verse. If you are going to be mature spiritually, you will go into the wilderness. Not optional. Water-based faith can work at the beginning. But if you walk with God for a while, you're going to look in your rearview mirror at the places where there was water walled up on the right and the left, and you could hear the voice, and you could see the Spirit. You're going to leave that place behind, and you're going to go to a place where you'll wonder who turned the lights out. And you know what? You didn't do anything wrong. In fact, you're there because you are following Him, not because you're not. Because you're not. Some of you are where you are because you're walking with God, not because you're not walking with him. He just happened to walk from water to wilderness. Why? Because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. You know what perseverance is? It's living with the tension. Living with the tension. Not perfectly, but learning. Too. That's Perseverance leads to our being mature and complete not lacking anything. If you're going to be spiritually mature, you will go through the wilderness. Right? Is that what it seems to say here? Be mature and complete, not optional. I can. Consider it pure joy. Yes! Yeah, okay. No. No, but at least we can make sense of it. We can be uncomfortable and not terrified. You know what it means for you? Here's what it means for you. You are not alone. That's what it means. You are not alone. The one who loves you more than any is leading you through. He's closer than your next breath. He's nearer to you than your next thought. And it, that it never, it doesn't occur to us, does it? A couple of things happen in the wilderness. God tests our faith in order to speak to us. Uh, when I think of testing, what does it mean to God to test our faith? This is a, the image that I always, it, it, it's the one that makes sense to me. Okay, you got this, you got this cliff face, okay? Anybody have repelling? Anybody, you, you've done some repelling? Okay. 
Yeah, so I, I, I don't know exactly how this happens, but you throw a belay line up on top of the cliff face, and then it comes down, and then somebody's got it anchored down there, so when you're kind of trying to navigate the cliff, and if you fall, then this guy's got it here, and, and they can keep you from going, okay, yeah. So, so there's a blade. So let's say that there's, there's three different lines. There's three different people on the ground, and, and they've got you in the harness, and there's three different clips on the harness with three different lines. One of them is a primary line. It's a thick line. It's one that can keep you up. And so if you, you know, this one's going to keep you up. But there's a couple secondary lines, just in case. And so, you know, they're tied off, and so you've got the main line. This is a good one. And then you've got these other lines, and they're off to the side. And, and so you might say, and let's call this middle line God, me and you. Yeah, I trust God. And then there's secondary lines. This is money. I'm not trusting money. And this is friends. I'm not trusting friends. Nice to have them, though. And, you know, I might say, I'm not, I'm not trusting these, <laughs> you know. Well, I'm trusting this one. But, you know, you know how you can really tell how much I'm trusting these side ones? Is when they start to fray. Is when they start to split. And then if I look at those and say, I'm good, then I really am trusting the middle line. But if my finances start to dry up, and I start to go, <laughs> then it really shows that I am putting a lot of faith in those lines. I think that's what testing our faith is about. And it's not to expose us alone, because here's what's going to happen. These lines are going to break sometimes. And you're going to be hungry for, hungry for. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be without these things. And, and if we could tell stories, you would tell me stories about how this worked. You only had this line. And at first, you would go, <laughs> but then you know what would happen over time? I'm not falling. You know what you would learn? This really is the only line I ever needed. And I wouldn't have known that if these sidelines had not frayed. That's why testing is not, oh, I'm trying to catch you. Testing is about, I want you to see, God. it's, it's a way God leads us to figure out to what degree are we living on the basis of what he says or living on the basis of what we see? What do we pull our faith from? What he says or what we see? The wilderness teaches us to put our confidence in what he says. God promises, I will never leave and forsake you. That's why we make a big thing about the commitments. That's the middle line, and the more we grab onto that. So that's the, what, what I think of. It's where we learn to trust the primary line, and God tests our faith in order to speak through us. Um, the only people that are tested in the Bible, God doesn't lead strangers into the wilderness. The only people he leads into the wilderness, no joke here, are his children. Look, You look. Whenever somebody's in the wilderness, it's not an Amalekite or a Hittite or a Jebusite or any of those ites. It's children. It's people with whom he's connected. And the reason why he does that is so that they can be a source of life for others. God not only wants to speak to us, but he wants to speak through us to others. There's a whole world of people that are very frightened and needy. Everybody experiences needs. 
And I think the way it's supposed to work is on the basis of our security, we connect with people. And we come alongside them. And we don't make them feel stupid for being needy, but we say what we can about what we're experiencing. You know what? And you can do this in a non-offensive way. I know exactly what you're feeling. You know, sometimes it might sound kind of weird, but God really can be very comforting. And faith in him can be something that is very, very meaningful. And people hear that, and it's not your, but just me. Because that really is what the good news is about, isn't it? That even in the midst of the things that we experience, that God's with us. Joel, come on up. We're going to make a closing song. A couple different kinds of things we talk about when we think about faith. There's water faith. That tends to evaporate quickly. It's important. But then there's wilderness faith. And if you're going to be a mature son or daughter, you're going to experience both. And in the places where there's wilderness, the challenge will be understanding that even though your stomach is growling and you hold on to that, you hold on to God's hand at the same time because he is still with you. And to invest in faith is to invest in your word, to hold on to the promise. It's easier in water times. It's important to think about the things that you've done for us and we're grateful for those things. And we hang on to that, but also in the wilderness times. That's a time when we have to hang on to your word and your promises with stronger grips. Like going across I-90 in, in winter when there's a storm and the wind's blowing and we have to hold on to the wheel. We hold on to your promises because it doesn't seem that you're there, but your promises are there. And as we put our faith in them, as we hold on to them, our faith grows deeper. I pray that you help us to become the sons and daughters you would have us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.